when I say the word <clears throat> politics, do you have positive thoughts or negative thoughts? <laughs> that wasn't an option, Russ. <clears throat> Just either positive or negative, okay? Let's keep it simple. <clears throat> I did some, some study on that word uh, in preparation for my, my message. And I learned a little bit about the origin of it. The word politics comes from the Greek word politica which is based on the work of Aristotle concerning the affairs of cities. And later in the mid-15th century, Aristotle's work was translated into English, and that's where we get the word politics referring to the science of government. Now, in my study, I also came across another origin of the word. Others suggest that the word politics comes from two separate words. The word poly, which in Greek means many, and the word ticks, which refers to blood-sucking creatures. <clears throat> yes, I know it's confusing. It's confusing for me. Okay, But I, I am pretty certain that the word originated from Aristotle. I'm just, that's just a guess. Yeah. However, I do, I do have to wonder if Aristotle could have looked into the future, would he have opted for the many blood-sucking creatures idea? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Unlike Aristotle, we get to peek into the future, so to speak. And this morning, we are going to look at the systems of the Antichrist during the tribulation period that seem to be filled with nothing but blood-sucking creatures. Last week in, in Revelation chapter 17, we were introduced to the great harlot. Remember her? If you recall, I lost my voice. If you recall, this great harlot symbolized a very enticing and inviting and wealthy false religious system that emerges during the tribulation period. This false religious system, which is just one feature of a much larger system, will expand far and wide. It will impact everyone from the greatest to the least. It's global. It's global. And its religious influence 
will be used by the Antichrist to consolidate his power and his control. Initially, initially, the Antichrist will support this false religious system. If you recall, she sits on his back. But there will come a time when he has no use for her. And he will betray her during the middle of the tribulation period. As part of God's sovereign plan, God causes evil to turn on itself. As the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple in Jerusalem to be worshipped as God without any other religious competition. So last week, we were told of her fate. This great harlot, this false religious system was stripped of everything. But as we will see this morning, her terrible fate sent ripples throughout the secular systems of the world that were in bed with her. This false religious system will not exist in a vacuum. She will be intertwined and intermingled with the political and the economic systems of the empire. And when she falls, it creates a domino effect. Now, before we go any further, once again, I want to clarify what Babylon is. Because we are going to see it mentioned several times, and it can get confusing. If you remember from last week, I said that Babylon appears to represent both a literal city, likely the capital city of the Antichrist, much like Rome was for the Roman Empire, but Babylon also represents a massive, far-reaching global system. As I mentioned last week, Wall Street is an example of this, where it is both a physical location in New York City, as well as our national financial system. Another example could be Hollywood. A literal neighborhood in Los Angeles, California, but it also represents a worldwide film industry. So I believe Babylon is a literal, physical city, not sure where, okay, not sure where, 
And at the same time, it represents a global system comprised of both religious and secular features, all of which are directly opposed to God and ultimately seek independence from Him. Okay. With that out of the way, with our understanding of Babylon, I think we can proceed, I hope. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 18. And we will begin with verse 1. Revelation 18, beginning with verse 1. Should be up on the board behind me. Okay. And John says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Let's stop there. The Apostle John begins by telling us, After these things I saw. Which suggests this is a chronological progression from what John just witnessed back in chapter 17. And in his vision, John sees an angel coming down from heaven declaring, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Here the angel announces the future judgment against Babylon. And yet he speaks to John as if it has already happened. It's a guaranteed judgment. That's what it is. It's a guaranteed judgment. And then the angel provides a description of Babylon after God judges it. And he gives his reasons for doing so. This future Babylon, now seen here as a city, okay, as a city, is left utterly desolate. It was once a great and prosperous city. The command center for the religious and the secular arms of the empire. But after it fell, after it fell, the city had become a stomping ground for everything that is wicked and unclean. If you remember, 
demons were released from the abyss below to torment the inhabitants of the earth. And later, Satan and his demons were cast down to the earth by Michael and his angels. And here, it seems, they have taken up refuge in the ruins of Babylon. It's where they dwell. It's where they hover like birds of prey, waiting for someone to devour. And this picture is very fitting. Because before its destruction, this wicked Babylon and those who cooperated with her lived it up like blood-sucking creatures at the expense of others. The false church, the power-hungry political leaders referred to as kings, And the greedy business and corporate types referred to as merchants all work together in unison to carry out the bidding of the Antichrist. The corrupt politicians laid in bed with the false church to gain power and influence while those in commerce grew richer from her taking more than they really needed to satisfy their greed. Again, all the systems of Babylon, the world's religion, the world's government, and the world's economy were all intertwined together under the control of the Antichrist. But now that the religious system is gone, at the midpoint of the tribulation period, the other systems who remain are in pain. Then John hears a warning from heaven, beginning with verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds in a cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come pestilence and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. We're told by John that he hears another voice from heaven saying come out of her my people so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. 
This is a warning given to those who become followers of Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. Now, I am not sure if believers are being warned to distance themselves from the city or to separate themselves from the system she represents, or maybe both. But whatever the case, the message is really clear. Get out. Get out. Because everything is about to collapse. Babylon is doomed for destruction and you don't want to be there. You don't want to be involved with her in any shape, form, or fashion when she crumbles. So come out of her before it's too late. God has drawn a line in the sand. On one side of the line is a commitment to Christ. And the other sign of the line is a connection to a world that opposes God and ultimately seeks to exist without Him. God is telling believers... Everything is collapsing. Everything is falling. So turn away from the intoxicating enticements of power and possessions and pleasure that this Babylon offers. Babylon fed herself with power and splendor and luxury at the expense of others. And now God will give her nothing but torment and sorrow and grief. Babylon seduced the nations. She glorified herself while ignoring the suffering she caused. And she thought... She was untouchable. Even called herself a queen due to her association with the Antichrist. But she will get what she deserves and then some. I'm reminded of what God said. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. It will be a complete and super quick destruction. As Babylon will experience the wrath of God to the fullest degree. Judgment falls. And one at a time, those who stood with her now stand in complete shock and terror as they grieve over her. In verse 9 we are told, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment 
has come. As I mentioned earlier, the kings of the earth represent the world's political system during the tribulation period. A system which Dr. David Jeremiah, I like him, Dr. Jeremiah claims will be socialist in nature. He suggested that socialism is tailor-made for the Antichrist. Explaining that under socialism, it creates conditions that bring great stress and trouble and difficulty. And then it demands a single system of government that becomes the central authority and regulator of all resources, all means of production, and the distribution of wealth. Dr. Jeremiah described that under socialism, all resources, all resources are thought to be under the control of the people. Stemming from the idea that society, that the community as a whole, should own and control all the resources and all the assets to distribute them equally to the masses. That's the idea. And at first glance, the idea sounds very promising. But, how can all the people make all these decisions? Well, they can't. It's not realistic. It's not practical. So under socialism, the government becomes the sole central authority of the resources and the production and the distribution of wealth. And ultimately, these governments are not controlled by the people. They are controlled by certain people. The kinds of people who selfishly seek out power and authority and wealth. That's the ugly reality of socialism. And it describes the political reality during the tribulation period. These political leaders in government, in the government of the Antichrist will have complete control over the people. They will dominate and prey upon them, all the while living it up in luxury and immorality. But then, the unexpected happens. They witness their capital city, their seat of government in smoke, and flames. 
And no doubt they now realize the party is over. From their perspective, as the city burns, so does the system. They are terrified at her torment. They weep and mourn because they know the same fate is coming to them. For Americans, there are no Democrats. There are no Republicans. There are no Independents. They're all gone. The entire political system of the world is gone. To make way for the righteous rule of God under the Lord's earthly reign. So the political system takes a nosedive with the city of Babylon. But as we will see, the economic system receives a lethal blow as well. Let's continue with verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. As you look at this passage, you almost get the picture that John is walking through a destroyed shopping mall. The jewelry stores... The clothing stores, the furniture stores, the houseware stores, the perfume stores, and the food courts are all destroyed. There's nothing left. And the merchants, those who represent the world's economy, they weep and mourn because their materialistic way of life their prestigious corporate positions, their businesses, their profit is going up in smoke along with the city of Babylon. They are financially ruined. No one is conducting business and no one buys and sells their products. And I need to point out that from John's perspective... Most of the items mentioned here represent luxuries, not necessities. Luxuries under the rule of the Roman Empire. Luxuries that even included slavery and human trafficking. 
which I suspect is likely representative of the of the sex trait. The only thing that seemed to really matter to these merchants was the bottom line. And when that took a hit with the destruction of the city, only then does the crying start. So the luxuries that people longed for and lusted after are gone. As God destroys a city and a system that has promoted the worship of stuff. Well, the grieving continues. And John tells us, beginning with verse 15, the merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour, she has been laid waste. We are told that the, the business types and the corporate executives join the government leaders to watch Babylon burn from a distance. And together they weep and mourn, not so much over the loss of the city, but for the loss of their power and their influence and their wealth. For them, the loss of Babylon was a personal loss. In this passage, we are told that the transportation and the shipping industry is also doomed. In the first century, these industries included caravans and other land-based ways of moving goods. But maritime shipping was still the most important. Ships continually crossed the Mediterranean to move both people and products in and out of that region. And likewise, during the tribulation period, when Babylon comes to full power, she will certainly be supported by all forms of transportation and shipping. But when Babylon is destroyed, all of that comes to a screeching halt. Now, while I am here, I want to point something out. <clears throat> 
because of the reference to the shipmasters and the sailors who stood at a distance watching the city burn, some have concluded that this city called Babylon must be a major seaport city. But I don't think we should, we should assume that. It might be, but I wouldn't want to assume that based on this. When John says they stood at a distance for us, that could mean almost anything. To include watching a mushroom cloud hundreds of miles away. Or nothing more than watching television or some satellite image. If you think about it, at a distance, we see what is happening in Ukraine. So my point is, whatever this city is, whether it has a shoreline or not, okay, this Babylon once had control of the transportation and shipping industry. Okay, that's the point. It, has, it had control over it all. But now, it all falls apart. The city is completely wiped out. And Babylon's ruin is the ruin of those who cooperated with her. So it's all over but the crying. But not everyone is crying. Some are actually rejoicing. Look at verses 20 and 21. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. It's a party in heaven. All the saints cheer. The Old Testament prophets cheer. The New Testament apostles cheer. The martyrs who had been persecuted and martyred during the tribulation period cheer as Babylon receives the trouble she previously imposed on others. Then John watches an angel pick up a millstone. Millstones were used for grinding grain into flour. So it's, it's large and it's very heavy. The angel plunged the millstone into the deep sea, symbolizing the finality of God's judgment against Babylon. 
like the millstone that sinks into the dark depths of the sea. Babylon is thrown down with violence, never to recover, never to be found again. Verse 22. And the sound of the harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Life is over in Babylon. No music, no art, no marriage, no homes, no work, no commerce, no production, no nothing. Everything that has been corrupted and distorted by the evil, wicked system of the Antichrist is gone. It's all gone. The false religious system was destroyed at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And now, along with the city, the political and the economic systems have been destroyed as well. All that remains is for Jesus Christ to come from heaven and to personally defeat the Antichrist and his armies in one last great battle. This the Lord will do. And then he will establish his own kingdom upon the earth. So the question is often asked... Where is this city of Babylon? Where is it? As you might imagine, there are all kinds of wild guesses about this Babylon. Even some of the cities in America. But for me, For me, it always seems to come back to only two possibilities, okay? For me, two possibilities. And the first is Rome, okay? The first is Rome. Many believe that the Antichrist emerges from the revived Roman Empire. And this largely, this this idea largely stems from passages found in Daniel. Plus, even as we speak, Rome is a city that already 
has worldwide religious influence. And in the early church, okay, in the early church, Babylon was used as a code word for Rome. Okay? So for me, for me, Rome seems to check all the boxes. But as you know, your pastor has issues. And as I have told you many times, I tend to take Scripture literally. Until it becomes obvious, I should not. And there is a possibility in my mind, that's a scary thought, in my mind, that the future headquarters of the Antichrist is actually the ancient city of Babylon. That's taking it literal. Okay, I I understand. That is taking it literal. I'm looking at your faces, and maybe you think I'm crazy. Okay? I want to show you something. I want to show you a short video. Gail, can you can you turn off the lights back there? Thank you. Get the lights back on. That's a dose of reality, isn't it? Babylon was defeated by the Medes and Persians back in 539 uh, B.C. Not destroyed, not destroyed, but left in ruins to rot. And as I speak today, as we just saw, it is being rebuilt as a, an archaeological and historical restoration project. It's being rebuilt in the open, right under our noses. Now, some of you might be asking this question Doesn't the Bible? Doesn't the Bible tell us that Babylon will never be rebuilt again? And my answer would be yes. Both the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah said this very thing. However, when it comes to prophecy, sometimes it can be difficult to identify its application. In other words, does the prophecy pertain to something immediate in the near future? Does the prophecy apply to something that will occur in the far distant future? Or in some cases, does it have a dual application? And we see a lot of that in prophecy. 
I think that is the situation here, where these prophets refer to two overthrows of Babylon. One that occurred in the 70th year of Israel's captivity in Babylon, and the second that will occur in the future on the day of the Lord at the end of the tribulation period. And at that time, Babylon will then be totally obliterated as predicted by the prophets, never to be inhabited again. So here's my point in all this. We live in exciting times. We live in exciting times. We are actually seeing Bible prophecy come alive in our time. We are seeing it right before our eyes. As Dr. Jeremiah says, the future casts a shadow. And we are living in that shadow. It's exciting because it confirms, at least for me, the time is near. Closer than you might have thought. Now, because the time is near, that might cause some anxiety and fear in some. But as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, no matter what happens in this world, no matter what we experience in our present reality, the fact remains, God is still on His throne. That has not changed. Jesus will return just as He has promised. He will be victorious. Good will triumph over evil. And in the end, it will all be worth it for those who overcome. When the dust finally settles, when the dust finally settles, Jesus wins. And those with Him win as well. That's great. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Lord God, for giving us a, a, a sneak peek, if You will, some insights to the future. It's not pleasant. But Father, it's not going to be surprising either. Because you've told us in advance, these things must happen. They must occur this way. So Father, I thank you for that. Thank you for who you are and what you do. Father, I ask and I pray that even in the midst of, even in our current world situation, 
that you would help us to keep our focus on you. It is so easy to get distracted. So easy to get caught up in the events that we lose sight of you. Again, I thank you, Father, for who you are. I pray, Lord God, you'd use us. That we'd be the kind of people you desire us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking this morning about uh, Jesus, the story of Jesus in the garden. After he had after he had prayed, he even asked the Father, Can you take this cup from me? It was a cup of God's wrath. But Jesus knew his Father's will, did he? He knew that. He knew he had to go to the cross. And then, and then the, the soldiers show up, right? A Roman cohort. That's a lot of people. And the soldiers from the temple, they show up. It's dark. They have their torches and their lanterns. It's dark. And Jesus steps out and, and asks, Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Jesus say? I am He. I'm who you're looking for. And all of them fall to the ground. They all, they all fall. These are, these are professional fighting Roman soldiers. They all, we're told, they all fall to the ground. What's that tell me? Jesus was Jesus was going, was going to let them take him into custody. But he wanted to remind them he was still in control. He was still in control. He could have dropped them all like a rock right then with a word. But he let them take him. He had that kind of control. And then we know Peter draws his sword, strikes one of the one of the attendants of, a, of the priest in the ear. And what did Jesus tell him? Put away your sword. And then he said, These things must happen. This is the way it has to be. These things must happen. And I, and I bring up this, this account because it reminds me of what we just covered so far. God is still in control. Even though the things he has described in the book of Revelation must happen. Just as he has planned. It might seem chaotic. It might seem confusing. It might seem that good 
is, is losing the battle against evil. That's only the way it seems. These things must happen just as God has planned. And that's where, that's where our peace comes from. Even though we experience what we experience, we know our Father is sovereign. And for us, it will work out in the end. We win. Thank you for being here this morning. I hope I did not confuse anyone. That was a, that was a difficult chapter. That was the one chapter I, I feared at the beginning of this study. So thank you, Jesus, I got through it. <laughs> it's a happy dance. <laughs> there, was a, there was a lot of stuff there. And so uh, if you have questions, I would love to talk to you about it and just kind of explain why I, why I believe what I believe. Uh, but if you're here this morning and, and uh, something, you have a burden on your heart, I would love to pray with you this morning. Uh, if you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you. If you'd like to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would love to introduce you to Him. He is good. However the Lord leads you this morning, I just ask that you respond to Him uh, in obedience. Let me close us in prayer. Again, thank you for being here this morning. I want to pray for our offering and just remind you our baskets are back there and then also for our fellowship. Apparently, we got a lot of food. Um, so, anyway, let me pray. Father, I thank you again for who you are and, uh, and what you've done. Thank you, Lord God, for these people. Thank you, Lord God, for this church. Pray, Lord, you just bless us and help us to be the kind of people you, you want us to be. Father, I pray that you'd bless our, our time of giving. Uh, Father, bless the, the gift and the giver. Uh, Lord God, help us as a, as a church to use your money wisely. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to be uh, cheerful and generous givers. And Father, for our fellowship uh, afterwards, Lord, I do pray that it would be sweet and productive. Lord God, I pray that we could make connections with one another. I pray, Father, that you bless the food and bless those who have prepared food and brought uh, food. And Lord God, I just uh, thank you for who you are and what you're going to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.